Adam, you've raised an interesting question with regards to the whole issue of scale, and I think this is the the, the real distinction between something like BioEve and the contemporary EvoGrid. Is the idea that I mean BioEve is fundamentally um, bottom up in terms of uh, you know a relatively small number of simulators, but certainly uh, you know a simulation base where it is maintained by individuals or a couple of people at most. And I think the other interesting thing that has come out of the kind of contemporary Evo grid is this idea of if it is more than an idea, then it would require a certain number of people and a certain amount of maintenance. And are there things that exist in the open source domain that solve some of this? Well, perhaps, but it would still require a lot of people. In terms of your, you know, your view as an, an artificial life simulation author, can you lend some ideas to how you know the problems associated with it being such a potentially large, time-consuming and expensive process? How do you think you know Bruce could scale down the Evo grid to make it something that was more doable in a kind of artificial life simulation author's context? Mm. Well, uh, not really sure I have an answer for that. Um, and we're, we're we're talking specifically about this the artificial the networked artificial life, I'm sorry artificial chemistry simulation. Um, I mean it would seem to me that it, so what we're talking about with with the Evo grid as I understand it is that I mean you sorry I'm sorry Tom my my ideas are kind of being formed as I as I talk to you and well that was the the whole intention of the visions. <laughs> the Evo Grid, uh, you know, recording was actually to uh, catch that idea as being formed um, sure. in audio in some regards. So, I mean, you, you've got nothing to apologise for. But I think what interests me is this, um, you know, you just, I mean, they're obviously two very distinct things, and this is something I've been saying through recent lives as well. I mean, the Evo Grid has become something which is actually quite removed from contemporary artificial life. But that is not to say that there are lessons in contemporary artificial life that won't benefit the Evo grid. And similarly, I think this idea of simulation space scanning, there are, there are a wide variety of techniques, which I think is why the Artificial Life Journal actually publishes on artificial chemistry as well. I mean, there are a wide variety of techniques in artificial chemistry that could probably benefit artificial life simulators in the long run. So, I mean, to answer my question to you, my sense is that um, there, there, is, there is mutual learning that can be done, and just because there are two distinct things doesn't mean that um, you know there can't be learning from from either side. I mean, specifically, what interests me about the idea of the Evo Grid, which I talked about in the last Bios Live, is the kind of metic view of the Evo Grid that it stokes a number of minds and ideally would get them contributing back into something like the biota community or the broader artificial life community. So perhaps through these um, visions discussions, there will be people that come in that have an interest where I could say, you know, that sounds very much like Brevet or that sounds very much like, you know, one of your simulations, Scott, or that sounds very much like what Gerald Jung is doing or basically match the, um, the participants in the Evo grid with contemporary artificial life simulations with the benefit to the kind of broader community as well. Because mm -hmm. I don't see these things as being... I mean, I see them being conceptually quite different, but I don't see them being kind of methodologically mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's my own view with regards to the, the question that I asked you, that I think 
there are things that could come through the Evo grid that would actually benefit contemporary artificial life. And I think my own concern with regards to moving from this idea of summoning the Evo grid, which is what Bruce is doing currently, kind of traveling the world, talking to, you know, talking to, I think it's something like um, he's done 20, maybe 22 presentations associated with the Evo grid at a wide variety of conferences. Plus, also, he now has about 25 advisors, which means that this Visions recording series will go on for quite some time. But mm. through all of this, eventually, in theory, this thing called the EFO grid will need to actually become something. Mm. Um, and what interests me through that as an artificial life simulator is the wide variety of things that, and this is the discussion that uh, Gerald and Jeffrey and I had with regards to the levels of detail in simulation, that there are certain kinds of simulation scanning that would work reasonably, but the levels of detail issue is something where an artificial life algorithm will optimize immediately for it, and possibly even because artificial life chemistry algorithms in some regard are almost subsets of artificial life algorithms. So there's potential for optimization that would eliminate novelty. So what interests me through this as well is that there is also a kind of broader philosophy that artificial life simulation authors can kind of get together and a priori come up with reasons that these simulations won't work from their own specific simulation experience. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's, there's some potential. I'm, I'm very receptive to what you say uh, about this being something which appears to be too academic to, you know, merit um, broader or longer-term interest, particularly you know, with regards to um, your own specific interests of, of emergence. But I think really, I mean, with what Bruce is doing in summoning the Evo grid, he is very um, intellectually hungry for people like you to kind of continue the participation because, I mean, artificial life simulation authors have a very applied set of experiences that just comes through writing code, maintaining code, you know, getting things to try and work together, obviously things like graphical user interfaces, user feedback, all this kind of applied stuff will be still highly applicable to what Bruce wants to do with the Evo grid in the future. I mean, sure. Does that make sense to you? It does. I, I want to reel back to something that you said earlier, which was uh, that you, you didn't see a divide between artificial chemistry and, you know, artificial life. You know, I mean, I, I think that there are many definitions of artificial life. I, I know there are, so uh, so that that may be true in how you're using the terms. But I, I do see this division in that w with artificial chemistry, what you're talking about are you know having a, a set of rules where um, you know inanimate chemicals interact, so a physics and a chemistry. And with the idea that, you know, anything that could, could arise from that would be sort of intrinsically part of the environment. And um, that so if you were to observe a creature with a particular, you know, genotype or phenotype emerging from that, um, it would really be – the distinction would almost be in, in your perception of it. You know, that it would just, as far as the artificial chemistry simulation was concerned, it was just simply another chemical in the soup. So, you know, so that the idea that, you know, there might be something like a genome, um, you know, that's an abstracted concept that really wouldn't exist in artificial chemistry simulation. So, I mean, that's, that's roughly how I understand it. Does that 
Does that make sense to you? Okay, so using this example, let's put the artificial life simulation of plants as being something that is equidistant between what you're describing as artificial chemistry and what you're describing in terms of kind of intentionality in artificial life. And I think the artificial life simulation of plants in particular, I mean, there's some theory somewhere along here which just sees a kind of combination of causal processes. And what you put in terms of intentionality with regards to artificial life simulation exists also in the artificial life simulation of plants and artificial chemistry if you look purely at kind of logical causation. So, I mean, my sense is that um, by your definition, would you consider um, the, you know, the, the artificial life plants as being more artificial chemistry than they were artificial life? Uh, I'm not. In, what are you referring to exactly? So, is, is this a, an existing simulation? Well, I mean, there are a number of existing artificial life plant simulations. Uh -huh. um, uh, for example, um, we had, um, I want to say, University of Paris, but they're based in Paris. There, I think, the mathematical uh -huh. school from um, University of Paris. They were on probably a year ago now um, in, on both live. Obviously, Bruce's original Nerf Garden is, you know, like one of the, you know, formative right. um, artificial life plant simulations. There are a wide variety of uh, L-system derivatives that go in a variety of directions. There you have a system um, which basically, um, I mean, the when you have an independent, um, like an intelligent agent or something like that existing in mm -hmm. an artificial life simulation, there is obviously a degree of intentionality that is pre-programmed in that simulation. But where you have um, an artificial life plant simulation, you have metrics like um, minerals in the soil, uh, sunlight, water, uh, and sunlight and water can exist in kind of vectors as well. They're not just scalars that are kind of dumped down on the plants. But the mm -hmm. plant's response to that is very much, uh, you know, s simple kind of causal response, almost in some regard, like um, uh, a cellular automata in some regard, mm -hmm. although there are obviously underlying genetic components. And um, uh, oh, the, the fellow's name has skipped my memory, but the fellow mm -hmm. who appeared on Biota Live talked about, you know, them adding things like, you know, predatory insects eating the plants and these kind of things. Sure. So what you describe with regards to an agent and intentionality and how these things kind of move together on the agent level, is um, uh, almost a kind of anthropomorphic um, uh, description associated with the causation that is applied in the simulation. Where you have an artificial life plant, in some regard, because it's bonded to something, it has um, very limited movement. I mean, aside from the leaves tracking the sun, these kind of things, it is a far more um, kind of causal thing in terms of you know, just getting nutrients, growth, what have you. And then you have, as you say, artificial life chemistry where these things are um, completely, you know, they're, they're not anthropomorphized in any way. You just have a series of causal processes that, you know, we'll, we'll put them together and it, it follows a set of rules. I mean, my point is that the underlying causation is the same throughout, although all can embody some, 
view of um, you know kind of determinate or indeterminate chaos with regards to you know underlying random noise or these kind of things. They're basically the same kind of causal simulation fundamentally. I mean, what what do you see as the distinction? Um, so okay, so I, first of all, yeah, um, Bruce did demo, I believe that at least one of those plant simulations. I'm, I'm recalling now the Graython, and uh, so. I, I do see a difference, in, and so you're kind of contrasting something like that where it might have uh, a list of plants and their location, number of leaves and their size and so on, and minerals and predatory insects, all as sort of abstracted concepts that the simulation knows about. Those are the, the simulation primitives. And you're contrasting that with the simulation, which I, I don't even know if, if such a thing exists, but let's say you had a simulation in which you had all those same entities, but the simulation um, was just very low level, just simulated the chemicals and uh, really had no idea that those chemicals were, were chained to form photosynthesizing plants and so on. Or is that the, the distinction that we're drawing? Why not? Okay. Follow on with the <laughs> thought. <laughs> all right. Um, do, I mean, does the second exist? that you know of? Well, I certainly know of um, molecular simulations that um, uh, where, in obviously the Dick Gordon example, where the um, molecular components to the simulation are then grouped and considered, you know, bigger and bigger molecules, basically, to the point where they, um, you know, become lipids and these kind of things. So, I mean, mm. my, my sense is that on that level, the simulations exist and certainly... Um, if, if we're just, you know, talking purely in a kind of theoretical space, I mean, one can imagine right. these kind of simulations working. I guess my point is more um, the... Uh, okay, so the, there is this idea of simulation that all these things are, are shared with. Um, and from this idea of simulation, um, artificial life simulations, you're saying, have a, a series of higher-level components which could be mapped with lower-level components, but we as simulation authors just choose to map them as higher-level components, which make them fundamentally different than the artificial chemistry simulation. This is what you're saying. That's basically what I'm saying. That with, with a, I mean, as, as far as I understand, with a pure artificial chemistry simulation, um, the primitives are, would be very low-level, and, and anything that would hopefully emerge would be um, unknown to the simulation. Um, and it, it, I mean, one difference that I see there is, well, say you have two different artificial chemistry simulations and uh, within each, you know, each simulation, different entities have arisen. Um, how do they communicate? Because, you know, any kind of attributes that you could recognize, uh, you know, of those entities, you know, that would be entirely uh, your perception. The simulation wouldn't wouldn't know about them. But I think even in the artificial life example, and a, I mean, a, a wide variety of intelligent agent simulations swarm, um, take it back to kind of the first um, intelligent agent simulation within the context of artificial life at least, there are emergent properties which the simulation has no knowledge of that only the observer can see. I mean, I think this is what's right. particularly fascinating as a simulation author is you start to say, okay, well, when you get the intelligent agents where they start behaving like communities, do you start, 
you know, do you start simulating a mean and a radical and start, you know, creating some kind of social simulation at that context or do you just keep doing what you're doing? And really the external observer is the only, I mean, you can write algorithms to find these things, but I don't think it's an intrinsic part of the simulation. I mean, what interests me is that this exists not just in artificial chemistry simulations, but also artificial life simulations. And it doesn't, it doesn't perturb or in any way diminish the results that come out of the simulations. I think this is, uh, the idea of the simulation knowing and um, optimizing or it being intrinsically written in, within the simulation is almost something that really, you know, if, if we're going to, um, you know, move into science of e-religion or any of these kind of things, ideally we'd want to, to be as far away from the um, the explicit writing of the emergent properties as possible. So, I mean, I think all these things are interesting and kind of broader simulation philosophy, but I'm still, I, I guess, I mean, my view is that the, it's extreme if the Evo grid is successful, it will actually create an artificial life simulator. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the aim, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea with regards to simulation coming to a self-realization that it's actually created, um, you know, living things or things with life expectancy was really uh, Dick Gordon's original test for this uh, emergent Evo grid. And I think, you know, the Evo grid needs that specifically. Mm. It's an interesting idea because what we are doing in even discussing this is we're already identifying things from the Evo grid that would kind of benefit the broader artificial life um, simulation community and probably a wide variety of other, um, you know, uh, if if intelligent agents are moving in their own particular direction as kind of intellectual movement, I mean, obviously that would benefit the kind of intelligent agent community as well. So, I mean, I think what we're doing here just by talking, we're kind of getting a sense of the possibilities that... um, Firstly, the simulation community can bring to the Evo grid, but also the potential that could come from the Evo grid. I mean, in terms of this thing, as as you've described it, it's kind of academic extreme. Do you think there's a need for Bruce to find a means of translating these things as they're found to the kind of broader, in one case, biota community? I mean, do you see that as being necessary? Well, um, I'm I'm not sure it is. I mean, I, I... So I just want to be clear, you know, when I said that this seems like an academic exercise, I, I wasn't putting down academic exercises. Um, and and there may be all kinds of applications, you know, as as you said, you know, terraforming asteroids or, uh, you know, developing other processes once we understand, you know, how to make things self-replicate. There, there could be all kinds of applications I'm just not thinking of. Uh, so... So the, I, I guess the fact that it, it doesn't specifically speak to me, you know, I I think that that's fine. Um, can, can you restate the question? So the idea, and I mean, really, this is kind of you know wrapping up mm-hmm. this, this this visions discussion. Sure. But the idea is that there are things that can come from the Evo grid, and I'm not here. Um, you know, your point with regards to academia is very valid. I mean, there are things that academics talk about endlessly that have no practical use to artificial life simulation authors at all. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's a valid point. I'm, I'm not trying to deny that point at all. 
But there are things that can come from the EvoGrid, which I want to really bring through this visions discussion, that could benefit the kind of broader biota community, could benefit you specifically, Scott. Mm -hmm. So in your ideal vision of the EvoGrid, you know, Bruce gets... Uh, millions of dollars of funding. He brings together brilliant programmers. They design and develop the Evo Grid, and it's been running for, say, five to ten years. Mm-hmm. In this vision, what is some of the what's some of the amazing stuff that you'd like to see come from the Evo Grid? Uh, well, as a developer, you know, one interest I'd, I'd have is um, it being or providing some kind of platform where I could develop simulations more easily. And they could, you know, many, run on many CPUs and, uh, you know, just sort of exploit exploit the power of, of the of the platform. Um, and I, I would like it to be as uh, as flexible as possible. So, you know, for me, if if um, if I as a developer have to buy into all kinds of constraints that don't really fit my simulation, um, that would be an issue. So, for example, if you know the only way I could play in the Evo Grid was to have my simulation support a three-dimensional physics, I'm not saying that that is a constraint on the table, but if it were, uh, that would make it less appealing to me. But if the Evo Grid provided that three-dimensional physics for you, that would be good. Yeah, I mean, if, if I wanted to create a three-dimensional physics simulation, and those, that and the Evo Grid made that easier, then, then you know that would be a good thing. But you know, one one idea I have about about artificial life development or, or simulations in general is that there, there's a real balance between the the kind of complexity of the physics and the speed at which the simulation runs, and um, and that if you're going to try to harness the power of natural selection and uh, mutation and so on, what you, what you really want is for the simulation to, to run as quickly as possible. So in my mind, there, there's sort of an optimal physics in which you can get kind of interesting open-ended um, emergent properties. And that may not be uh, a three-dimensional kind of physics. It, it may not be a real-world physics at all. So, so basically, I, I want the option, at least. I want the option to kind of develop my own physics with its own constraints. And, uh, you know, if, if, it, if it can communicate with other simulations, for me, that, that's a benefit, but it's, uh, it's sort of a, a less important aspect of it. And in terms of... The potential for this to exist in the future, I mean, I think what interests me with regards to all these kind of ideas, I mean, XML is a good example of this. The, you know, if you talk to people 20 years ago about the kind of things that you can do with the contemporary internet, the bit that is missing is obviously XML in terms of the understanding of 20 years ago versus the contemporary internet. I think what interests me with regards to your description is that it is not just about presenting you with these kind of options. There may actually have to be some new kind of technology or some new kind of insight that will actually enable these things to be possible. I mean, does that does that also resonate with you? 
something like XML or? Well, no, um, XML is, yeah. is a relatively yeah. neutral example. Sure, what sure. I'm saying is in these ideas of um, uh, simulation science, for example, there's a kind of broader emerging intellectual phenomena. There are components, particularly with regards to atomization, as you say, with regards to distribution of simulation, which will require different kinds of simulation methodology in the future mm -hmm. in order to actually create these kind of... So it's not just a situation where Bruce would come to you and say, with your existing knowledge now, you know, you can develop any kind of simulation. There may actually need to be some some learning and some new ideas, basically, mm -hmm. that will actually facilitate this. I mean, does this make sense to you? Um, it does. And, you know, and, and regardless, I mean, there, there, there may be certain types of simulations that will be outside of, you know, the outside the boundaries of the Evo grid. And so, so that's kind of where I'm at. I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in the possibilities and, I accept that, well, you know, the simulations that I may want to write might not fit in neatly into the EVO grid. So, and to me, that that's okay. You know, it's not ideal, because I, I do see the ideas as being very powerful. But, you know, I mean, one concern I ha have, for example, is, is about this issue of time. That um, at, at one point there was a discussion of, of how to ensure that all that, that simulations that were interconnected had the same sense of the passage of time. And to, to me, that seemed like maybe not a limitation I wanted to impose upon my simulation because, you know, I might have one where uh, I really want to run as fast as possible. And, and, to, and for me, it, you know, that might mean that when there are fewer creatures, it, it runs much faster than when there are a lot of creatures. And I don't necessarily want to sacrifice CPU in order to, to have a, a regular heartbeat. So it's kind of my thinking on that. So in terms of in terms of your simulations that you're working on currently in the in the near future, Scott, what what have people got to look forward to in that regard? Hmm. To be honest, I, I haven't really been devoting much time to it lately. I've I've been working uh, for three different companies on five different projects. So the the hobbies have taken a back seat, but um, the the most current project I have up is it's my attempt at a, a framework was more or less a proof of concept and in reaction to some of the ideas I heard about the the Evo grid, um, and that's on RipplingLoop.com. The the framework is called VatLife. Basically, um, as I said, it was you know kind of inspired by the Evo grid. Um, it's, you know, it's a relatively high-level um, simulation in that, you know, it, it, it's not your artificial chemistry simulation for sure. Uh, it, but w what it does essentially is it abstracts the idea of environments and the organisms within them and the control logic that governs each, each artificial life form. So, for example, you know, the, the cognitive simulation that you developed for Noble Ape, um, my, my idea was, well, you know, I'm, I'm developing these simulations in which I'm, I'm creating the physics, I'm creating the creatures, and I'm creating some kind of, some way of interpreting the, the genomes of the creatures and, uh, and giving them some, some logic based upon that. And my thought was, well, you know, wouldn't it be nice if I could just take, say, the Noble Ape cognitive simulation 
and just you know have it work within my program without having to either modify it or modify the the simulation itself. So that that was one of the goals there. Pretty cool. Yeah. You were working with Gerald de Jong for a period of time last year associated with kind of RNA or artificial life-like RNA. Can you talk a little bit about that project? Uh, well, it was more of an, an email discussion. Um, so, yeah, we, we were talking about the Nuance engine, and, and he was kind of helping me with some of the the ideas that I had about that life. And I, I'm, I'm not sure we ever really arrived at a, a consensus, but it was, yeah, it was a very interesting and, and helpful conversation. But, you know, the, the, the basic, can I just talk a little bit about the basic concept of that life? Certainly. Yeah. So the basic, so in the real world, you know, we know that, you know, we're all atoms and molecules and our genomes, um, you know, our physical forms are all emergent properties of our of our physics and chemistry. Um, but, you know, I, in that life, I, I really, I thought about the, sort of the morphology as separate from the, the control logic of each creature. So it, it sort of, kind of, it does blur the line a little bit between artificial life and artificial intelligence. But my thought was that, you know, each creature could be sort of abstracted to, to have a morphology and kind of a a brain which would be separate from the from the body and uh, so so basically in that life you have environments which they basically express the the physics and the the fitness function and you know and the more interpreting the the morphology of each creature so you might have a creature that has a genotype which um, the one example that's up there, the artificial life forms are essentially polygons. And, it, well, that's what they are. They're just very simple two-dimensional polygons. And the, the environment uh, interprets that genome by producing a, a polygon for each creature. Um, it's a very simple environment. The, the idea with that life, again, is you could develop your own environments, and they can be mixed and matched and so on. But um, but then the idea is that each creature also has a separate genome, which uh, a controller. So, for example, I, I'm hoping one day your your noble ape cognitive simulation could plug into this. But that that controller, which is dynamically loaded, it's not part of of the VatLife framework. It's a exists as separate jar files. That so that could be loaded and be handed a genome and produce a mind from that, and then that controller can communicate within the, the environment. It can uh, essentially operate the, the logic of each creature. And, uh, and that, the idea is that that's completely generic, so any controller would work in any environment. And, uh, you know, and, and eventually the, there would be an idea that the same kind of creature could migrate between environments that might be somewhat different. So that was kind of a lengthy <laughs> explanation there. I hope it made some sense. Certainly, certainly. And you've you've mentioned your um, your blog for for people wanting to um, kind of get the ongoing development associated with this project. And obviously, I'll put a, a link through to your uh, your site and contact details associated with this podcast. Scott, is there anything, any final thoughts you want to 
to leave the listeners with regards to your own particular vision of the Evo Grid? I, I think it's it's a very interesting project, and I hope it succeeds in whatever form that, that takes. You know, just as, as far as artificial life in general goes, um, I think it's it's a pretty exciting time that we have all this computing power available to us. And uh, I, I my hope is that we're really going to see the application of um, artificial life techniques and uh, particularly that harnessing evolution for our own purposes, um, that it's going to really have transformative uh, possibilities. So, and I, I do think Biota is a part of that and the EvoGrid. Well, I'd like to thank you, Scott, for participating in this first Visions of the EvoGrid recording. I know it's probably quite challenging with absolutely no uh, <laughs> previous audio or sense of direction, but I think we've we've wandered through a number of points and certainly pointed out a lot of the stickiness associated with the EvoGrid and, and related projects and ideas. So, I mean, thank you very much for the for the chance to participate in this first Visions of the EvoGrid. Great. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity, Tom.